Uh, hey guys, good to be back with you today. We're going to be in the book of Luke. So if you have a Bible, turn to Luke uh, chapter 9. If you want to follow along in the version app, you can go ahead and do that. Um, I'm in my van today. Let's see, where am I? I'm down by the Wave Organ, um, down by the Yacht Club in San Francisco. So let's see, can you guys see? Yeah, you can kind of see the bridge back there behind me. Um, Anyway, I don't really like filming in my van. Last time I did this, everybody sent me emails about how bad it is to film in my in my van because, you know, my back is so bad. Well, okay, yeah, that's true. But anyway, uh, just with the school at our place that Melissa's running, you know, there's, like, narrow windows where I can actually set everything up and film. So um, had to get this one done today because tomorrow is Melissa's birthday, and so I don't have time on Saturday to work on this stuff at all. So, um, well, actually, for you guys, yesterday was Melissa's birthday, so... Anyway, um, we're going to be in the book of uh, Luke today, and we're going to be talking about identity. And um, let me ask you this question, and just think about this for a second. How would you respond if I asked you the question, who are you? Like, when you hear that question, really, what's kind of the thing that pops into your mind? How is it that you define yourself? Um, in the world right now, there's basically two different ways that people answer this question and that people come up with identity. So the first way is sort of the Eastern philosophical way comes strongly influenced by Buddhism. And we find this in a lot of Asian cultures. We also find this um, in some like Middle Eastern culture. Um, the idea is that your identity comes from your your where you're born or what family you're born into, right? So your identity comes from your family, from from your clan. There's not the focus quite on the individual like we have. And in these cultures, you find your truest self, like in Buddhism, for example, you find your truest self by ultimately completely shedding yourself of individualism and becoming one with the world, right? You've heard that sort of thing, or one with the universe or whatever, you know, uh, they... they it's a big value in Buddhism, right? To sort of, to shed off the individual. And so, like, one way to put it is to say you're not really a drop of water, right? You're not an individual drop of water. You're just a part of the ocean. And so that's how you find your identity, is what ocean are you a part of? Well, in the West, we do things basically the complete opposite of that. And we overemphasize the individual. And we're, we're influenced here in the West when we're talking about identity by a few different things. The first is kind of enlightenment philosophy. Um, the next big one was the Protestant Reformation came along and um, really s focused on the salvation of the individual. And that had a big, wide-ranging effects outside of things even like religion. Um, then there's existentialists, which I've talked about before, but existentialism um, and existentialist philosophers like... Uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, um, Soren Kierkegaard, Simon de Bouvier, uh, these philosophers really came along and they said um, that you, you ha your identity comes by building your own story. Your identity comes by being, uh, you know, uh, you fill in the blank pages of your life. Now, this is where we get all this sort of talk in the West about you have to be true to yourself and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And, um, Find your happiness, you know, speak your truth, all that sort of stuff comes from these existentialist um, philosophers. And the idea in the West is, look, you're not part of the ocean, right? You're an individual drop of water and nobody else is exactly like you. And so you have to be the, the best you that you can be. Now, both of these systems, when you think about it, when, when we're trying to find our identity, both of these systems then will impact our behavior. So in Eastern philosophy and in Buddhism, right, if you're separating yourself 
from uh, individualism, you're you're detaching yourself from the sort of uh, the attachments of this world, and so that really influences the way that Buddhists are supposed to live. But in Western existentialism, we uh, we do. Uh, really affects our behavior too because we have to live our truest truth and we have to be true to ourselves, and we have to find our own happiness and it's almost like you have to do this and it doesn't really matter the cost right and so we have these romantic comedies where you know they're trying to find their one true love and be their truest self and all this crap and me you know and the whole story is about leaving somebody else at the altar or cheating on it the at the base of it right it's cheat cheat on your husband because that helps you be your truest self that sort of thing right all these julia roberts movies i'll be honest that i've never actually seen but you know what i mean right and a lot of our movies and our our, our literature and our songs are all about this right like you have to write your story and it has a massive impact on the way people live with their families it has an impact on the way that people work and um like find meaning in in work it has a huge impact on and i've talked about this like at length before but on sort of the pro-life and pro-choice debate right it's um, for a lot of pro-choice people this really is about like it's not about protecting life it's about protecting my right to write my own story right and so this existentialist philosophy really helps um, helps really impacts the way that that people live just like eastern philosophy impacts the way that people really live and when we open up scripture what we see though is that neither of these are the the option that the bible gives us there's a third option jesus he offers us another path um, to identity and i actually didn't even kind of look through this book um to talk about identity today um you know, I had a bunch of other, you know, information I want to give you today, like a bunch of stuff I want to talk about today. But um, my friend, uh, the pastor of Reality, the church here in the city, he wrote a book called, um, oh, wait, crud, now I'm blanking on the name. Um, I think it's called The Truest Thing About You. Dave Lomas wrote it. And um, it's a really fantastic book on identity. And so if some of the stuff that we're talking about today even sparks a little bit of your interest, I really recommend you go grab that book and let Dave teach you a lot about what the Bible has to say about identity. But anyway, the Bible, when you come to the, the Gospels, right, Jesus is offering us not Western individualism or Eastern collectivism as a place to find your identity, but the path to identity in Scripture um, is different. And the path that Jesus gives us and that he gives his followers also has a massive impact on the way that we're supposed to live. So we're going to talk about this in the passage today, but before we really get into the passage, we need to set a little bit of context. Um, in the, the, the part that we've been reading, we've been talking about the, the Jewish expectations for the Messiah. And we've been talking about how the Jewish folks thought that the Messiah was going to be this political leader who would come in and who would stomp the Romans and who would set up the kingdom of Israel just like we had in the days of Solomon, just like we had in the days of King David, right? The grand uh, kingdom of Israel. And they thought that the Messiah would come back and be a political leader, almost like a Judas Maccabees from the intertestamental period, but on a grand scale, right? And set things back up. Not the, the intertestamental Hasmonean dynasty, but a real, like a godly new version of the dynasty of David. And so this was the, the, um, the expectations that people had. And at one point, Jesus asks his disciples, well, who do you guys think that I am? And Peter makes this grand confession. You're the Messiah, right? The son of the living God. And Jesus tells him, dude, that's awesome that you, you think that because God revealed that to you. That's true. And God told you that, which is, which is pretty cool. And 
So Peter's feeling pretty good about himself, you know. But the problem is Peter's expectations of what a Messiah uh, is supposed to be were probably a little bit off. And so the very next thing that Jesus says is he starts to get into, well, let me tell you what the Messiah, who the Messiah really is. Let me tell you what the Messiah is really going to do. The Messiah, you see, is not the political savior who's going to give the Romans the boot. The Messiah is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. And he says, me being the Messiah, what that means is I'm going to head to Jerusalem, right? And they're going to kill me. The, the, the leaders of our religion, they're going to kill me. And then I'm going to rise from the dead on the third day. And Peter gets all upset and he rebukes Jesus. We talked about just what strong terms that is, right? To rebuke Jesus, uh, to rebuke his uh, rabbi as the disciple was virtually unheard of in the ancient world, right? In this system of disciples and rabbis. And um, Jesus responds, you know, get behind me, Satan, right? You're not acting on the words of God anymore. Now you're acting on the words of the devil. Anyway, so that's the thread that leads us to our passage today. Is there's these political expectations of the Messiah. Peter claims Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus corrects Peter on what the Messiah is, right? I'm not the political king. I'm the suffering servant. Now, chapter 9, this whole part here, is a really important um, breaking point, like, um, you know, section in the book of Luke. Up to this point, what we've been reading is Luke is really doing... Uh, his best to answer the question, who is Jesus? And he, we, we read that last time, right? All these people are asking this question, who is Jesus? Well, now the narrative turns a little bit. He's been in this Galilean ministry and the narrative turns to this focus on the ministry in Galilee and seeing who Jesus is at the outset to now he turns and he starts facing the cross. He starts heading towards Jerusalem. He starts heading towards the cross. And as he does that, as he starts to head towards his death and resurrection, the, the rest of the book of Luke, not exclusively, but a big chunk of this book now focuses on teaching the disciples, not just, Jesus says, not just who I am, right, but who are you as my disciples, right? He, he, he turns it to show um, what it's like to be faithful to him and what it means to follow him. And so in the next whole bunch of chapters, we're going to learn a lot about who we are meant to be as followers of Jesus. And this text here is really that breaking point that really kicks it off. So Jesus says, look, now that you know who I really am, I'm not the political Messiah, I'm the suffering servant. Now let's pivot and let's tell you who you are. So we're going to be in Luke 9. Let me read verse, um, let's see, where am I? Verse 23. Sorry, I forgot my real Bible today. I'm reading, can you see this thing? Right, this is like the world's tiniest print Bible. These Bibles are phenomenal, but they're a little hard to read when you're, you know, up front in front of church. Anyway, verse 23, And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. So Jesus says, look, if anybody would come up after me, which is literally what he's saying, is if anybody would walk behind me. Now, in this culture, right, we've talked about this disciple and rabbi relationship before. And in this culture, the way it would work is you would have... Uh, these disciples weren't just like students like we have now, right? I had some pretty cool college professors, a seminary professor or two who wasn't insane. But anyway, um, I had some cool like teachers, um, but they weren't my rabbis necessarily. A rabbi was really more like um, somebody you, you lived with a lot of the time, you spent a ton of time with. It was more like a really in-depth, like uh, on-site internship, right? And the way it would work is the rabbi would walk around and he would teach and the disciples would follow him around like a, a, a mom duck, you know, crossing the road with all the little baby ducks, um, you know, following behind. Think of that. And so Jesus is saying, look, if any of you would be my disciple, if anyone, if you guys want to walk behind me, 
and let me let me say this too before I get into what that looks like. Notice how he says if anybody, right? So that's another key theme in the book of Luke is that this this discipleship and this salvation is offered to uh, to anybody, right? It's not just to these Jewish folks, and that's a key theme in the book of Luke and the sequel, the book of Acts, is that this salvation now is being opened up, and the, the this whole wide group of people are going to come in and be the people of God. And it's a really amazing part of this book, right, that the kingdom of God is all-encompassing. And, you know, um, uh, it's a big group of people from different ethnic groups, different socioeconomic classes, um, from, you know, different like interests, all sorts of stuff, right? All these different kinds of people are going to be brought in. And when they're brought in, what does this discipleship look like? Jesus gives in this verse, in 23, he gives three uh, main ideas about what this discipleship looks like. And um, I think it's important to say this too. Uh, in Semitic languages and in Semitic sort of speech and stuff and teaching, there was this very common literary, or, you know, like teaching device where what a person would do is they would say the same thing but three slightly different ways to kind of emphasize three different aspects of uh, the same thing. So it's like if I was trying to describe, you know, like I would say uh, it's really hot in here and it's not cold in here and boy, I'm roasting, right? All of those are three ways to say the same thing about how hot it is in this van because I can't open the windows because I'm teaching and the wind is really loud outside and the microphone would pick it up, right? Those are all three different ways to say the same you know, the same kind of thing. So we're going to look at all three of these. So the first thing is he says that this person, this disciple, right, uh, you know, must deny themselves, must deny himself. Now, this is a very strong Greek word that Jesus uses. This is the word that's used in Peter's denial, when Peter denies that Jesus is the Christ later, you know, when um, that he even knows Jesus while Jesus is on trial and is about to be executed. Um, you know, the story, Peter denies him three times. We're going to get there in the book of Luke. This is also the word that's used when describing um, John uh, just completely uh, denying that he's the Messiah. Are you the Messiah? Heck no, I'm not the Messiah, right? And so it's this, like, this strong denial. And so what does this mean to... Um, to um, to deny yourself. Uh, well, one scholar put it this way, and I really like this. The scholar said, uh, Peter denied, uh, you know, standing around the fire while Jesus was on trial, Peter denied that he even knew the Lord, right? I don't, I don't even know him. It says he starts cursing. It says, I really, I don't know him. Denying yourself is the opposite of that. It's saying, I know Jesus so well that I barely know myself. Usually, the way it works in the Western world especially, is we treat ourselves like we're the center of everything. Denying ourselves is the opposite of that. You're not the center of everything. Not only am I not the center, but I'm so um, devoted to Jesus and for him being the center that I almost don't matter, right? It's like this ultimate humility. The second thing that Jesus says is, okay, you need to deny yourself. But remember, he's saying the same thing a few different ways. Um, he's saying you have to take up your cross daily. Now, in our modern vernacular, right, in our modern speech, we use this phrase a lot, and it's actually really kind of messed up. What we say is, we, we trivialize this, right? Oh, you have to sit in traffic. How long is your commute? Oh, it's like an hour and a half. I have to sit in traffic every day, but you know, that's my cross to bear, right? Or, uh, you know, oh man, they put onions on your sandwich when you didn't ask for it. Yeah, man, these onions are gross, but you know what? That's my cross to bear. It almost trivializes the idea of crucifixion crucifixion in the ancient world was horrible. Um, it was originally invented, and we're really going to get into this when we get to the, the cross uh, later in the book of Luke, but it was invented by the Persians, and the Romans really perfected this process, 
and it sort of adapted from they used to just take a big spike and they would stick it through somebody and like spike them really high up off the ground and then just let them die that way it it, it evolved to what the romans had with the cross and everything and um <clears throat> and the cross beam and sometimes nails were used sometimes they weren't uh, but the whole idea was it was so, it, usually it would take days and days of agony to die and the idea with crucifixion is it was one of the most brutal ways we've ever invented as a, a humanity to kill somebody and to just prolong their suffering and that word too right excruciating what that means is um it's that uh sorry my phone's buzzing here um it's the latin you know, it means from the cross, right? And so the idea of crucifixion in the ancient world was terrifying to people, and especially to people that were oppressed by the Romans, because the Romans used crucifixion as a tool to uh, help uh, instill fear in the people that they were ruling in these conquered areas. And so this was really used as a, a tool of fear, but also just for the kind of the lowest of low criminals, right? Roman citizens weren't allowed to be crucified because it was so brutal. And in a lot of circles, Romans weren't even allowed to talk about crucifixion, right? In polite, in polite circles. Romans, the Roman citizens wanted nothing to do with this. And so when a person was crucified, the way it would work is they would have, um, there'd be a, a, a beam somewhere where they were going to be crucified. But they, what they would do is they would take the cross beam, um, and there's a big Latin word and I didn't write it down what that cross beam was called, but they would take the cross beam and they would tie it to the shoulders, right? And they would outstretch the arms and they would tie it to the shoulders of the person who was to carry the cross, uh, who was to be crucified. And that person literally had to carry their own cross to their own crucifixion. And what would happen a lot is, a lot of times that, and this is what happened with Jesus, is a lot of times the person was um, uh, uh, flogged beforehand. And so after brutal flogging that almost kills them, this person was then taken to the cross with this cross beam tied to their shoulders and they would lose strength and they would fall, but there would be nothing to grab uh, and, and, and um, soften their fall and they would fall on their face. And so by the time they got to the, the cross to be uh, to be actually crucified, just carrying the cross itself was brutal. And so what, when, when you would see somebody, and this would happen a lot, right? Like when Jesus was a kid, there was a group of rebels who, I forget the exact number, I think it was like hundreds of them, right in a town next over to Jesus. Hundreds of these guys were crucified. Um, and, uh, by the Romans to sort of squash this little rebellion. And my guess is that Jesus and most of the people in this group, this crowd of disciples and followers of Jesus, had seen people actually crucified. And when you saw somebody carrying the crossbeam, right, what did you think? That, that poor person, they are completely not in control of their own fate. Somebody else is completely in control and they are completely suffering. They're suffering as much as humanly possible. And so Jesus says, to be my disciple means to deny yourself, but also to carry your cross. That level of commitment, right? Jesus isn't guaranteeing that this will happen to everybody, but he's saying the, the willingness to suffer will extend to even carrying your cross, right? And so for his followers, we should be so devoted to him that if it ends up costing us our lives, we're still going to follow him. Now, it's easy to make this sort of a, a lesson or a metaphor, right? Well, what's your cross that you have to bear? But let's remember this. Um, for this original audience included a few guys that we know were crucified, right? Like Peter was crucified in Rome during the persecution of Nero. And so when Jesus says, right, you need to follow me to the point that you're going to be willing to be crucified, probably they're sitting there thinking, man, this is 
big doings, right? That's like a serious commitment. And for some of these guys, that is literally what happened. And so, again, it shows us what the kingdom of God looks like. Jesus is clarifying this, and he's going to talk a lot about the kingdom in the next coming chapters. But um, this is not the kingdom of power and might and of a strong victory, right? The kingdom of God wins through weakness and humility. And Jesus, through his death, uh, he emulate he. He does that first, and then we, his people, are called to emulate that. So we have the two, the first two, right? Um, you know, you deny yourself, you carry your cross, and then the third one is you follow me. Now, in um, in ancient, like I said, in ancient writings, the literary device was we're going to say the same thing a few different times, right? So you have denying yourself, right? You follow the king with such devotion that you're always willing to put him first. You follow the king with such devotion that you'd be willing to die for him. And then the third one is you follow him with your entire being. All You know, you actually follow him. You don't follow him some of the time. You follow him all of the time. Do you see how that fits? Right? We follow Jesus. But where does Jesus go? Right? Like I just said, Jesus went to the cross. And this whole shift in the book of Luke now goes from Jesus uh, kind of teaching about, or, you know, Luke telling us who Jesus is to this real, real focus on heading towards Jerusalem, heading towards the cross. And so the command to follow Jesus is just another way to say, carry your cross, like take up your cross and follow me, right? Um, Jesus, this isn't a general invitation to just, oh, you know what, follow me when it's convenient, whatever. It's a restatement of those last two things, to deny yourself and to be willing to take up your cross. But think about it. When you're talking about you know, life and identity. Who wants a cross, right? You know, the cross has become like a, um, you know, we wear them around our necks and we get them tattooed and, you know, the, the, the hip hop stars are wearing the big cross with the, the diamonds and it's almost become, you know, not that big of a deal. But the cross in the ancient world was this symbol of oppression and it was a symbol of torture. And who wants that, right? Who wants to be oppressed? Who wants to be tortured? That's a raw deal. And so what happens next in our text is Jesus moves on to explain how not only is this not a raw deal, it's actually an amazing deal. Like being being able to suffer for Jesus is an amazing deal when you put things into the grand perspective. So what he does is he gives sort of three reasons that three reasons why this is a great deal, right? Following him and taking up your cross is actually fantastic. And he, he gives three reasons why, and they all start with the word for. So each of these verses, so let's look at verse 24. He said, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Okay, so when he's talking about saving and losing life in this verse, in the Greek, again, this is one of those places where English kind of has a tough time translating it. In Greek, right, there's, we talked about this a few weeks ago, there's, there's words for life. There's bios, which means like the biological, just like you're alive. Um, and then there's the word zoe, which is the, um, like the good life, you know. Uh, well, this is actually a third word. It's the Greek word psyche, right, where we get the whole range of words about um, psychology and all that stuff, right? He's talking here about um, identity. He's talking here about your soul. Who are you, right? What's the meaning of life? And he says that people, everybody is trying to save their psyches. They're trying to save their souls. They're trying to save their identity. They spend their whole life searching for meaning is another way to put that, right? Trying to save their spiritual lives. And Jesus is having this sort of play on words. He's saying that almost like um, in spending... Uh, all of your time on earth, you, 
trying to save your 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 psychological life, your spiritual life, whatever we want to call it, right? Trying to, to find this meaning and create your identity, what you're actually doing is you're losing your eternal life. You're losing real life in the process by trying to save this other kind of life here and now. Um, I'll give you an illustration. Back in the day, there was this football league here at... Um, or, you know, across the U.S. I, I figured they had 10 teams or something. And it was sort of like minor league football almost. It was called the UFL, I think. And they only had one season before the whole thing collapsed, and it was in 2009. And in San Francisco, we got a team, um, and the coach was Dennis Green, the old coach of the Arizona Cardinals in the NFL. And um, it was basically this whole league was all the people who couldn't quite make it in the NFL, so they went and played in the UFL. And so we got a team called the Redwoods, and they used to play at the Giants ballpark. It's called Oracle now. I don't know what it was in 2009. AT&T Park, maybe something like that. Well, anyway, this whole league was stupid and dumb, and nobody liked it, and that's why it collapsed. And they literally couldn't give away tickets to these games. And so one day they called the church that I was working for and I was a youth pastor and they said, hey, would you bring a bunch of your youth group kids down just to kind of fill the stadium and, you know, we'll give you as many tickets as you want. And I was like, sure, I'll take 10 tickets. And then I think they literally, they sent me 50 tickets. So I got some of the guys together from the youth group and we went down there and, uh, you know, we kind of walked around the stadium. It was fun to be in the stadium, even though it was a minor league football game. And, um, you know, the game wasn't really that interesting. Anyway, so as we took our seats, you know, we walked around, we slid down the Coke slide, I remember, and uh, we sat in the bleachers and then we thought, man, these seats are lame. So we went and we snuck into the, you know, we just, there was nobody in the stadium. So we went and sat behind, uh, what's like the kind of the dugout in baseball area, you know, right down by the field, nobody cared. And so we went and we sat down and as we took our seats down closer, um, I, we sat down and I noticed, man, there are three very large guys sitting in front of us. And the guy in the middle is Joe Staley. So Joe Staley is a 49er legend offensive lineman who just retired. Um, and at this point, he was kind of at the peak of his career. And I didn't bother him. You know, he's there. He probably played with some of the guys that were in the league. And he just wanted to show up and support him and say hi. And, you know, we just kind of left him alone. Um, I didn't ask for his autograph or nothing. But anyway, right after the game was over, they made an announcement on the... Um, the uh the sound system you know anybody that wants redwoods players autographs please head down to the the field level and you know you can get autographs and i remember all the people started pushing past us it became like this almost frenzy to go get these autographs from these no-name ufl players and i noticed a lot of these people what they were doing is they were pushing past joe staley because they didn't know who he was to go get an autograph from these minor league football scrubs right and i remember thinking man they had the real deal right there and they had all these people they had no idea that this was joe staley this is a real football player right this guy's a legend could be a hall of famer and you're pushing past him because you think that that down there will satisfy you and that's exactly what humanity does, right? We spend all of our time looking for UFL autographs in this life because we think that they're cool. Meanwhile, we're ignoring the real deal, right? We have eternity at our fingertips and we're pushing that aside so that we can have something that's lesser. And we look after these cheap imitations of eternal life without realizing that what it's doing and what this trying on our own to save our lives on our own, it's costing us eternal life, right? We're trading the real thing for the fake. And so self-denial and suffering in this life on its face, it seems kind of like a crummy plan, right? Nobody, I don't want to suffer. No, you know, why would we want to suffer? But what Jesus is asking us to do is he saying, in the moment, it might seem like you're suffering. I'm asking you to not go down there and let the crowd get the UFL autographs, and you have to skip the autograph that right now in this moment you really think you want. But the reason you have to skip it is because I want you to come up here and I want you to get Joe Staley's autograph. 
right? So deny something that actually in the long run is not that important so that you can have what in the long run really is important. And But this is also important, right? He says, do this for my sake, right? In Buddhism, they have this very strong value of self-denial. And uh, the same thing shows up in other religions as well. But self-denial is not the magic formula that leads us to happiness and joy. And a lot of Christians throughout the ages, like the early aesthetic, uh, ascetic Christians, um, you know, who live out in the desert and stand on a pole for 20 years or whatever, live in a cave, those guys, some of these monks, right? They thought self-denial just for self-denial's sake was the point, but that's not it. That's not what Jesus says. He says self-denial for his sake is what matters. It's all about, it's not just about depriving yourselves of things so somehow you'll be more holy, right? It's about doing what Jesus calls you to do. And sometimes that involves suffering and sometimes that involves denying things that in the moment you think you really want. And in the moment you think suffering is awful, but in the long run, it's it's what happens. It's what God needs for his kingdom. Now, and so that's the first reason, right? Jesus, that's the first four. Now let's jump to the second four. And again, what Je what Jesus is doing here and Luke is doing in the way that he records this is give, doing that same thing where he says the same thing a few different times in a few different ways so that we better understand it. So the next one is verse 25. He basically says a very similar thing. For what does it profit a man if he gains a whole world and he loses or forfeits himself? So do you see what Jesus is saying? Everything in the world isn't worth your soul. If you could own literally everything in the entire world and have it for yourself and lose your soul at the end of life, it wouldn't be fair. It wouldn't be a good trade, right? That would be a raw deal. But what if you could have nothing in this world and everything in the world to come? That seems like a better deal. And so here's the thing though, right? How often do we all spend time and effort and energy chasing identity through the things that we own and through the things that we possess. And actually the other day, see that I'm guilty of this, right? Because the other day we did one of those garbage pickups where we threw away all our junk. And I remember, man, I bought this thing, I bought this thing, and now I'm throwing it away. And I made that joke to our neighbor who came out and he was saying hi. And I said something like, you know, yeah, this is the American dream, right? Buy so much crap that eventually you just throw it all away and you don't really care, right? We try to almost define ourselves by the things we own. Even if intellectually we know that's not how it works and I'm not the things I own, ooh, but if I have the new iPhone, ooh, if I have this new guitar or whatever it is, right? And then I will finally be somebody. Then I'll finally have some sort of sense of satisfaction. And it's just not true, right? There, it's the universal truth that pops up all throughout scripture. Let me flip back to the book of, um, wait, too far, the book of Ecclesiastes, um, and uh, chapter 2, so the, let me give you the, well, I'll just read the verb, I'll give you the context first, so the context of this book is basically, um, there's a rich guy who has everything, this king, um, you know, uh, tradition has said that this book was written by Solomon, um, some folks think it was somebody writing like almost as if he was Solomon and we're not getting into that now. It doesn't really matter. Um, but the idea, I think, you know, this was, if this was Solomon, let's just say this is Solomon, right? So this guy has everything. And the whole point of the book is he's evaluating, like, how do I find true happiness? And he's like, I try basically everything else. And then the end of the book is, you know, fear the Lord. And, uh, I forget exactly how it goes. Fear the Lord and obey his commandments, right? This is the... You know, this is where you're actually going to find happiness. Well, anyway, in the middle of this, he's talking about all the different things that he tried to make himself happy and all these different philosophies and how none of these things actually made him happy. All right, here we are. Chapter 2, verse 4. 
I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks. I planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which water of the forest, uh, of which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves, and I had slaves who were born in my house. I, I had also great possessions of herd and flocks, more than anybody who had been before me in Jerusalem. I gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I had singers, both men and women, many concubines, uh, the delights of um, the children of men. So I became great, and I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept from my heart no pleasure for my heart. Uh, sorry, for my heart found pleasure in all the toil, and all this was the reward for my toil. And I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil was expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So, so with that context, right, basically what Solomon says there is, look, I tried everything. I had everything that anybody could have ever wanted. And what happened in the end? It was all just like grasping the wind. No, There was no satisfaction in it. Um, I think I said that quote a few weeks ago. I, I didn't Google it then. I didn't Google it now either. That Jim Carrey quote about how I wish everybody could be rich so that they could f get everything they ever wanted and then find out nothing will make them happy. Whatever it is, something like that, right? Uh, it's true, right? The, we, we try to define ourselves by, um, by the things that we own and by the things that we have. And Jesus says, right, that's not going to work. Um, when you look in the grand perspective of your entire existence, it doesn't make a lot of sense to just try to get everything now. Um, like I'll, I'll give you an illustration, right? a little story. There was a race. Uh, there was a, um, a runner, a long distance runner. Well, I don't know how long distance, you know, not like marathon runner, but uh, he ran like the 5,000 meter race. His name was Habos Gerbowit. Um, I think he was an Ethiopian runner. Anyway, um, and he was in this race in 2019, and it was a 5,000-meter race. And, you know, they're running laps around the track, and he was, he was like, pretty far ahead. And then all of a sudden, he pulled up, and he started celebrating. And he thought he had won, and he slowed down, and then all of a sudden, the entire pack passed him because what he didn't realize was he wasn't done with the race. There was still one more lap. And people who live trying to define themselves by riches and live for comfort here on earth are just like that guy, right? I'm going to start celebrating and completely ignore the fact that there's still a whole nother lap here. Or actually, a better way to put this kind of illustration would be something more like, imagine a marathon, right? 26 point whatever, my I think 26 miles, something like that. 20 something miles is a lot of miles, right? I'm never going to run a marathon. I don't even like driving a marathon. Anyway, so how silly would it be, though, if in a marathon somebody would be getting really excited because they're in first place after the first 10 feet of the marathon? Wouldn't we look at them and say, what a silly person, right? There's still 20-whatever miles left. You still got a lot of running, dude. That's what people do, though. I have comfort. I have wealth. I'll set my my whole identity on these things and then I'll be happy and then meanwhile in the grand scheme of their life in the grand perspective there's still a lot of race left right this life is not all there is there's eternity afterwards and your existence after this life is what really matters because that's what's going to go on forever and you have to think about your life here on earth with that in perspective this life is only the first really I mean it's only the first step of a marathon and so what if Jesus costs you money now? What if Jesus costs you pain and suffering now? With a long perspective, that's okay. 
right? Well, what if you trip and fall in the first first foot of a of a marathon? That's okay. Um, this all kind of reminds me of King Tut, you know, in 1930, whatever. Um, the uh, Howard Carter, I think his name was, you know, they dug up King Tut's tomb and they found all the gold and everything. But what was King Tut really? He was a dead guy wrapped in very expensive things. And he thought, because the Egyptians believed you could take stuff with you, they would load up these tombs with all this stuff that they wanted to take with him. But in the end, he's just a dead guy covered in gold. And so that's the perspective that Jesus wants his disciples to live with, right? Suffering and pain in the here and now is worth it when you put things into the grand perspective. And so the third thing then, he gives a little more detail uh, on this perspective uh, and living in sort of light of um, our eternal existence. And so the next verse is uh, verse 26. Let's see, where am I? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words... Of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. So the next thing that he says is, look, if you're ashamed of me, when it's all said and done, I'm going to be ashamed of you. Right? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words. If you look at the world with a, a short perspective, everything that Jesus is saying doesn't really make any sense. Right? Suffering and dying, that doesn't make any sense. Right? I'm the Messiah, but I'm going to die. And you're my people. Um... But that's not going to guarantee you an easy life. And, and in fact, it's actually going to guarantee you a hard life. But in the end, it'll all be worth it. Right? That's kind of crazy, right? Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians. He says, um, for, the word, for the word of the cross, right, this idea of suffering and pain for the kingdom of God, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those... Uh, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So to those who are perishing, this gospel that Jesus is preaching here is nuts. It's madness. It doesn't make any sense. But they will live life denying him. And, and so they'll live life denying him and rejecting his words. And in rejecting his words and his gospel, they'll be rejecting him. And they're living life as if the first 10 steps of this marathon is all that there is. And in the end, uh, he will give them what they've asked for, right? Separation from him. And they're, they're going to face the, the throne of judgment. And in a lot of tellings of the gospel, and in a lot of preaching, uh, modern preaching and books about God, we tend to leave out this aspect of judgment out of the story of the gospel. But the truth is, this idea of judgment is all over the scriptures. And uh, even though it's offensive to our modern ears, right? This is something that modern people were ashamed to talk about, Um Think about that for a second, though, right? Like, how arrogant is that to, to say to Jesus, right? Well, you can't tell me what to do. You can't judge me, right? I know you created me and all that, but you don't get to judge me. Who are you, right? But that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. To live with eternal perspective, to really live with eternal perspective, people need to hear the whole story. And part of the whole story is that someday they're going to stand before the judgment of God. And there's two paths, right? One leads towards Jesus and one leads towards judgment. And so you can't say to Jesus now, I don't want anything to do with you. I don't want to believe your gospel. I, this is all baloney. I want to be comfortable and I want to create my own identity and all that stuff. And then show up at the judgment seat and say, okay, Jesus, now I need you. That's not how it works, right? That's like um, not having AAA, right? And then you get a flat and you call AAA. Hey, I want to sign up for AAA. What are they going to say to you? Dude, you had your chance to sign up and now you're out there with a flat tire. It's too late, right? Yeah, that's kind of a terrible illustration, but you know what I mean, right? That's not how it works. To live in eternity in union with Christ, you need to be united to him here and now. You must follow him. And so you can imagine 
as Jesus is talking about all this stuff, this small crowd of, it's the disciples at this point, and it's a couple of other people are kind of hanging out. Um, you know, there's a small crowd here. Um, jaws on the floor as Jesus is telling them, I'm the Messiah who's going to suffer, and you as my people, you're also going to suffer in the same way. And remember, Peter, we talked about this, I talked about this in the sermon last week, Peter probably had this grand um this grand plan for how he was going to be some sort of a political leader in the coming Messiah's kingdom. And I'm going to be the chancellor of whatever. And I'm going to be important. And my family's going to move to Jerusalem. And so for him to hear all this in such short succession, this is a lot. Um, this is a lot for Peter to take in, right? Be willing to suffer and die. And so next Jesus says this, it's sort of a transitional verse. Okay, my GoPro overheated. I told you it was hot in here, so I'm back, but it's actually like 20 minutes later. All right, let's see. I gotta go back and do some of this stuff I just filmed. So we're gonna jump back to reading this last verse. Uh, verse 27, but I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now, um, there's a couple of options when interpreting this verse, what it could possibly mean. The first option is that some of you disciples are going to see the kingdom of God come in that, like Jesus is talking about, the resurrection. Uh, the second option is some commentators and theologians and scholars, you know, Bible dorks, uh, they'll think, oh, maybe this is Pentecost when the, the spirit falls and the church begins. Um, but actually, the most logical answer is the third answer, and it's just look at the next text, right? It's the transfiguration where Jesus glows and uh, like a um, like what were those glowworm dolls from when I was a kid, right? Um, we'll talk about this. Oh, I'm kind of skipping over this because we're going to talk about this in more detail next week. But um, I guarantee that seeing this transfiguration, there were three of the disciples, Peter, James, and John, who saw the transfiguration, right? Um, had an impact on the way they live. And once you see Jesus glow and you see his divinity, all of a sudden suffering for him will make a lot more sense, right? Now, so let's take this and let's talk about what does this passage mean? This is a hard and a challenging text and let's not beat around the bush. No bones about it, right? This is a tough thing to read. How devoted should you be to me? Be willing to take up your cross, follow me. Uh, you should be willing to die for me. Now, look around at that sort of uh, humility and devotion and self-sacrifice, does that describe humanity as we know it? Is that what is that what humanity looks like, right? Well, let's just take even just the West. Is that what we look like in the West? Are we a selfless people? Do we prize and strive for weakness uh, or overpower, right? Do we live with eternal perspective? Um, do we value humble people over proud people? No, this doesn't describe us at all. Not really. Nobody would describe, especially Americans, nobody would describe Americans as humble, self-sacrificing people who are willing uh, to not have material goods and who are willing to suffer now so uh, that they can serve Jesus better, right? We're a selfish people trying to build our identities to satisfy our emptiness with things that ultimately won't help in either of those two things, right? We're trying to write our stories and fill our lives with the junk that we think will make us happy. We're trying to find ourselves, you know, all this stuff. But that's, um, you know, that's a pretty good description, pretty good description of Americans. And the sad part is that's also a pretty good description of American Christians. Now, the idea that followers of Jesus will be willing to suffer and, um, and, and die for him, what that is, is that's a surface level 
uh, sort of the bubbling up at the top surface level of something that's happening deep down, right? And the real question below, are you willing to suffer for me? It's, are you really one of my disciples, right? It's the question of identity. You can't live like this for Jesus just in your own power and in your own brute strength. You can't white knuckle it and be willing to take up your cross and follow him. Before any of that stuff happens, you have to be his disciple. You have to receive a new identity from him right and our king right our king jesus won the war with sin by suffering and dying and our salvation then comes through weakness as well our salvation is not about how strong or how good or how awesome we are it's about how desperate and weak we are we don't receive it through power but through weakness that's where we we receive our salvation and so we're saved by coming to Jesus with this just complete and utter desperation, right? Like um, the woman, the unnamed woman with uh, the bleeding, right? We come with that sort of desperation. We just say, look, I am nothing, Lord, uh, and you are everything. And when that happens, when we really do that, we are given by the Lord. We're given a new heart. We're given a new identity. We don't get our identity by denying our individualism, like in Eastern cultures, or by finding our true selves and living our truth and writing our own story, like in Western existentialist culture. We are given our identity by from the suffering king. He's the one that says, look, it doesn't matter who you think you are. It matters who I think you are. And that's the truth. That's Lomas's book, right? That's the truest thing about you. We are his people adopted into his family. And so... If our identity comes from the king who is bringing us into the next world, then the truest thing about us is that we are children of God heading for eternity. And if that's true, then it seriously impacts the way that we live in the world here and now. It, it impacts what you do when you wake up, it impacts how you spend your money, it impacts how you treat your spouse and your kids. Everything about you now is changed because you've been given this new identity. You aren't called to live for comfort in this life. You are part of the kingdom of Jesus now. And sometimes that kingdom means suffering to further his kingdom. Keller put it this way in a, a sermon he taught on, not this passage, but a different passage, but uh, um, one of the parallel passages. He says, I'll read this to you. He says, here's what he said, talking about Jesus. He said, I didn't suffer so that you would not suffer. I suffered so that when you do suffer, you'd be like me. I suffer so that when you suffer... Uh, the kingdom of God will advance in you and in others, right? So your suffering now will advance the kingdom of God because you're suffering just like Jesus. You're suffering for his name's sake. All right, but I don't feel like that, right? This text still makes me very uncomfortable. I don't want to suffer. I'm not quite there. How do I get there? Well, we can't take this scripture or, you know, this text and just completely remove it from the context of the rest of the New Testament. The rest of the New Testament really... Um, spells this out, right? How do we move from point A to point B? Well, it's this process called sanctification, right? Self-denial is this sort of self-denial for Jesus' sake. It's a spiral. And when you come to Jesus, the process starts. He gives you this new identity, and all of a sudden you see yourself in a new light, and his spirit is transforming you, and the process begins. And you start to make small but very real choices to deny yourself and put yourself into situations where you would suffer for the kingdom of God. And when you do suffer, um, you know, you look at it with kingdom eyes. You want to live that selfless life. Now, you're not going to be perfect by any means, but what's going to happen is you're going to take steps. You, you know, you'll make this decision, this will happen, and that's a step. And every step that you take opens you up more and more to the work of the Holy Spirit. And the more that you're opened up to the work of the Holy Spirit, the more you take these big steps of self-denial. 
And as he works in you, what happens is you're on this spiraling path to become more and more and more like Jesus. And so that's the challenge, is to open yourself up as a follower of Jesus to the working of his spirit. Um, ask the Holy Spirit, right? Ask him to mold you and to make you more like Jesus, right? Uh, he's the king who suffered and you are his people and you should be willing to even take up your cross and follow him. And that means you live your life with real eternal perspective. You're going to be so devoted to the king in this life that you'll be willing to follow him to, to Calvary. But let's not water this down. Again, I don't like to do that. When Jesus lays claim on your life, he doesn't ask for part of it. He doesn't say, follow me sometimes. He says, you need to follow me completely. He lays claim on all of your life. Many of us want, and I've said this a lot as a preacher, we just want fire insurance, right? I don't want Jesus to have anything to do with my life here on earth. I just don't want to go to hell, right? That's what we want. We want an easy believism. We want cheap grace that lays no real claim on our lives. Think of the arrogance that it takes, again, right? The arrogance it takes to come to Jesus and say, God, I know you're God, become a man, and I want you to save me. I just don't want it to change anything about how comfortable I am here and now. Just, I want it to be comfortable now, and I want to be comfortable in eternity. And what Jesus says back in that verse is, look, if you're denying me here, I'm going to deny you there, right? If, you, if you're ashamed of me here, I'll be ashamed of you. Uh, if your salvation has no real impact on the way that you live, if your salvation has no impact on your sort of humility and self-denial and self-sacrifice for the good of others and for the good of his kingdom, then you're probably not really one of his disciples. But if you are saved, this is what it looks like. Devotion to the king, no matter the cost, right? This is not what we do to get saved. This is what we do once Jesus has transformed us. This is what it looks like to be a real follower of Jesus. This plays out like in the sequel to the book of Acts. It plays out really well, um, sorry, in the sequel to the book of Luke, uh, the book Acts. This plays out, right, this suffering. Um, Stephen, stoned to death. James beheaded, Paul and Silas tortured in Philippi. And we have countless examples, right? Um, all of all but one of the apostles, right? When we did the list of the, the disciples, when we did the sermon just on the 12 names, all but one of those guys were martyred, right? These, these guys that Jesus sat down and said, you need to be willing to take up your cross and follow me. A lot of them had to. And Peter, who's one of the guys who eventually would be crucified for his faith in the book of first Peter, he wrote these words, but rejoice in so far as you share in Christ's sufferings. Do you see that? Rejoice in the fact that you get to suffer for Jesus. He says that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. You suffer now, to further his kingdom. And then someday you're going to rejoice and you're going to glory in him when you enter his kingdom. Your suffering is a part of God's plan um, to bring people to himself, right? Because suffering was how initially he brought people to himself. So why would you be any better than him? So who are you? Who? What's your identity? You're a child of God. You're part of his family, right? This is the, the great, the group of people um, who don't we don't win through power and through strength we win through weakness and through suffering because we're emulating the life of our king and our savior our messiah our creator and our lord jesus christ and eventually what's going to happen is jesus is going to take all these people who are his children right, adopted into the family of god we're, he's going to take all of these people into the new heavens and the new earth and he's going to gather them together we're going to share stories of our suffering and we're going to rejoice that we were able to do that for him and when we're in that moment every all of it will have been worth it 
Every cross carried, worth it. Every persecution, worth it. Every bit of suffering for the kingdom of God, worth it. Every dollar that we spent that we could have spent on something else, else worth it. Every action that makes the world look at you and say, what is this guy, nuts? Worth it. All of it will be worth it when we come into the new kingdom. And I want to end just with this encouragement that the Bible gives us the end of the story. And this is the end of the story. Verse, uh, sorry, Revelation 12, 11, right? It's not quite the very end. That's in the end of Revelation, but you know what I mean. This is God's people. It says, and describing um, who we are. And they have conquered by, uh, and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved their lives, they loved not their lives even unto death. See that? They, they, they loved not their lives even unto death. I, I love Jesus more than my own life. Right? That's what a disciple says. That's who I want us to be as a people of the porch, right? As part of the kingdom of God. This small church in this, uh, this, this wonderful city up in the northeast corner of San Francisco. I want us to be a people who are so devoted to Jesus, so devoted to Jesus, we'd be willing to carry our crosses, take up a cross and follow him. Because in the end, although it's not fun now, it'll be totally worth it. We'll be in heaven, the new heavens and the new earth, and we'll be rejoicing God for the chance that we had to suffer for his kingdom. Amen? Let me just pray, and then we'll jump into the song. Lord, um, we'll admit that suffering and carrying a cross and self-denial and losing comfort in the world here and now is not who we would choose to be right that's not what we want for our lives we want to be comfortable um, we don't want to suffer nobody wants any of those things but lord we understand that you have saved us and help us to focus on that salvation help us to focus on you and be so madly and deeply in love with you that suffering and pain for your kingdom and self-sacrifice and self-denial is a small price to pay and it, it just it feels so insignificant in in perspective of the grand scheme of getting to be a part of your family i pray as a church lord um, that you would help us be these kind of followers that there would be nothing we wouldn't be willing to to give up to follow you i i pray um that our lives would impact the world for your kingdom and um, that you would that you would use us and that we would be useful to you in accomplishing your purpose even if that means suffering even if that means pain even if that means costing us comfort and money um, just help us to be the kind of people lord who who want more than anything um, to see people follow you in, in more and more numbers so, so we ask for your, your blessing on our church. We ask for your blessing on each of us individually. And we just want to say we thank you. We love you so much. Amen.